0: Welcome to this episode of Talking Musicology. I'm Stephen Graham and with me as ever is Liam Cagney. Hi. The relationship between psychoanalysis and modernism is deep and tangled. Attempts to psychoanalyse modernity stretch right back to key figures such as Freud, Klein and Jung. Jung's 1913 vision of a sea of blood over the northern lands of Europe figures individual psychic imagery as collective psychosis. Meanwhile, Freud's fingerprints are all over modernity, whether we look at his own extensive literary criticism or at adaptations of his theories by figures such as Harold Bloom. And the traffic went in both directions. Thomas Mann, Schoenberg, Walter Benjamin, and Virginia Woolf, to name only a few fairly arbitrary figures, all directly incorporated psychoanalytic concepts and processes into their work. That's to say nothing of the central place of Lacan, to whom we'll return in a moment, in theory and literary criticism from the 1970s on. So Seth Brodsky, whose 2018 article for 20th century music Ream, Tonality, Psychosis, Modernity, we'll be discussing in today's episode is on tried and tested ground here. And familiar too. Brodsky's 2017 University of California Press book from 1989 or European Music and the Modernist Unconscious swam in very similar waters to the article we're focusing on today in its use of psychoanalytic models to interpret music history, culture, and style. Brodsky, Associate Professor of Music and the Humanities at the University of Chicago, has a tighter focus in the present article than that of the book, though as we'll see, I think, tight probably isn't the best word to describe Brodsky's work. Rehm tonality, psychosis, modernity, looks at the composer Wolfgang Rehm's weirdly centered position in Germany. Where, as Brodsky states, Riem is now Germany's most established but also establishment living composer with considerable influence over policy and programming, he's the emblem of a new musique firmly embraced by the state and its bodies in the context of his deliberately unanalyzable, asystematic music, a music that presents what Brodsky calls an exorbitant spectacle of instability. The real juxtaposition here, though, is not necessarily between Reem and his cultural surroundings, but between Reem's music and its cultural heritage. Because at the heart of this article is a long and extended blending of Reem's use of tonality, which appears in his music as a series of kind of abstracted, denaturalized, or disreputable tattoos cut off from normal hierarchical functioning and meaning, with Lacanian theories of psychosis and language. For Lacan, the key dyad here is that of neuroticism and psychosis. Neurotics, he thinks, are castrated but at the same time conscious of this structural lack at the heart of their lives, while psychotics, by contrast, are simply cut off from any master signifier in the first place. They have no meaning-giving system, unlike the neurotic who has a system but knows that system is broken. And psychotics, indeed, are unaware of any such system in the first place. Brodsky, in this article, uses close readings of pieces such as the Wolfie Buch to make an argument about what he sees as modernism's neuroticism. And here, let's pause for a moment and listen to a sample of that work. Modernism ultimately plays with psychosis, with the foreclosed loss of a quilting point or ground, but in the end can't get away from the what he calls the neurotic reinstantiation of various new quilting points or fathers or master signifiers, and he mentions things like serialism and Darmstadt as examples of those new kind of meaning giving centres. As he says, quote, a new musical language will be founded out of the failed attempt to find or refine music's language. He goes on, this language would stage repeatedly music's inability to secure the grounds of its own language. But modernism is, for Brodsky, still radical in its disavowal of any center, in its fantasy of a being without fantasy. And in this radicality, he argues that it transforms the very idea of any ground at all. Quote, modernism or modernity carries, for the modernists more than most, the constant presentiment that the past was wrong. There were never any gods. The law was always already rotten. Solidities and certainties were always illusions, end quote. So a lot to chew on there. Liam, I'm always keen to hear your reaction to whatever we've kind of penciled in to discuss, but I'm particularly keen in this case, as I know you reviewed Brodsky's aforementioned book for a gramophone and you had much to say on it. So what did you make of this article? Do you think Brodsky managed to tell us something he didn't in the book? Has he helped us understand Reem's music? Has he helped us understand Lacan or none of the above?
1: there's so much to say about this article that we'll never even really get started in saying uh, or doing it justice. There is a lot in common indeed as you say between the book from 1989 and this article. When I was reviewing the book for Gramophone, besides the praise that I gave it, one of the criticisms I made about Brodsky's approach was that in drawing on so many different theories of modernism in order to build his argument, he had somehow neglected to engage with artists and composers' own statements about the creative process and about how they experienced it. These are the people who are creating the works which we're discussing. So people like Paul Clay, for example, in visual art, who have so much to say about what creativity is for them, I thought could perhaps contribute to the discussion of what it all means basically which is what Brodsky is is addressing in the book at least in this article he does indeed do that I mean for the most part the as you've suggested the theoretical framework is uh, that of Jacques Lacan based on the symbolic and the imaginary uh, theories of neurosis and psychosis and so on but towards the end of the article especially we do get some of Rehm's own Reflections on his creative process, uh, which I was pleased to see. I thought, in that regard, it, it develops what Brodsky was doing in the book. It starts to kind of build on that and, and to open the picture out a little bit. That said, the long quotation which Brodsky gives from Rim, about uh, co- his, his his process of composition. I would not really interpret it the same way as Brodsky does. Brodsky uses it to kind of back up what what he's been saying about some of these kind of negative conclusions about the situation of of where we are at. Whereas I feel that there is uh, a certain freedom and affirmation within what Reem says, uh, which is kind of brushed over. So we're already kind of going on a digression without having even begun the main main narrative, but why don't I just uh, read it out anyway? Let's see. Yeah. Okay. So this is what Reem says. My musical language, the German word is Sprache, formed itself like a dialect with concrete objects which had to be addressed and for which in conversation I simply had to find a name. The encounter with the unnamed and the grasping of this situation are prerequisites for learning how to be an artist. Year by year, the vocabulary grew richer, but the unnamed unknowns I encountered also grew in number. Nothing, absolutely nothing relieves us of the burden of having to find our own language. The whole nostalgic fuss in all its mawkish pathos has shown us how quickly the attempt to secure history fails when one continues it with a thread that has already been used. So I believe the issue here is interpretive. Brodsky uses this quotation and interprets it from a kind of You know, the law, the father uh, associated uh, point of view. Whereas I would fix upon this notion of the creative process as involving the encounter with the unnamed and the unnamable, and for that, in fact, to be kind of uh, a much more affirmative situation than I think is being presented in the article. So basically. So where to begin? I mean, we can never really begin, and that's in tying in with with Brodsky's article again. Where to begin in discussing this? So the whole Lacanian framework is one which I find problematic. Before I maybe say more about that, I should absolutely uh, commend Brodsky on, on the panache and style with which he deploys it here. We're so used to, or at least I'm so used to, I feel, reading musicology articles which, you know, in inverted comments use a little bit of theory, use a little bit of Deleuze or use a little bit of Derrida or, or Lacan to back up an argument, but not in a very engaged uh, or particularly persuasive way. But Brodsky here has clearly, clearly done the legwork, clearly understands Lacan in, in detail, has read a lot of Freud, has read, you know, basically anything that you would wish him to read and accordingly uses this theoretical framework in an inventive way and it really is an inventive theory Uh, but as I said the the grounds of it and the basis of that theory and negativity and lack and bad conscience it's it's not really how I would see uh, modernism in in some cases we we can go on and discuss that a little bit more um, um, later on but just to kind of say in brief first that there is a tendency I think in in what Brodsky is doing here to generalize about what all modernist artists are doing whereas for me the whole issue of of modernism is about singularity in in the case of artworks and singularity in the in the case of of each artist in things that cannot be generalized and which sort of prohibit us, I think from making these these broad theoretical statements about what it all means um so there are a lot of different aspects. Wh- Shall I ask you about the style then? Uh, did you have any comments to make about the style in which it is written? Because that's one thing that I think our listeners and, and readers are going to notice uh, straight away.
0: I mean, it's 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 a dense, jargonistic style, which if you ha- have been immersed to any degree in this kind of theoretical literature, at least in English translation, because... Um, obviously this is a, an English language article and we're dealing here with Lacan and Freud as kind of put through the filter of um, kind of anglophone thinking to some degree um, at least in that frame I think it makes sense if you, if you have those references to hands I think as, as, as we've seen in the quotes that you've read out and the quotes that particularly the quotes I read out from Brodsky himself This is a language that you you need to commit to and that you need to invest in in order to get a handle on but i would say as far as that goes it 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 kind of works as a presentation of information you know it's playful it begins with a joke um it's very alert to humor and to kind of balance of textures in terms of ideas and weight and so on so whilst being at risk of kind of toppling over with with the weight of its theory, I think it just about manages to stay standing. But I do want to come back to a few things that you said there in these terms. So you mentioned about how often when theory is wielded in relation to music, it it feels very kind of like a gloss or kind of something that's splashed on top of things to give them a bit of a finesse. Um, it, that doesn't feel the case here. Um, clearly, as you say, Brodsky has read Lacan in detail, and is it's a it's a core kind of research interest for him. Um, so that's probably a good thing. But if anything, Lacan here appears in detail. If anything, I would say in too much detail. There's just too much. Um, this this article. And again, I don't want to be too negative because I got a lot from it and I would recommend anyone listening to go and have a read if you're interested in any of these kinds of worlds or ideas because there's a lot here and there's a fundamental argument or framing of modernism which I think is quite original and quite striking. Um, and that's, that's something to behold in 2018 for someone to have managed that. So that, that is something not to kind of play down or, or kind of ignore. But I, I do think that he has taken Lacan too much as a kind of a, well, as a kind of a quilting point or master signifier. You know, he's used that system really in quite a, not even a neurotic way, but almost in a kind of a, a straightforward, um, kind of literal, li- literal way almost. So we could have done with more psychosis in the in the in the thinking. <laughs> you know, there's there's playfulness in the thinking, but there isn't enough a kind of a creative kind of breaking of of the chains if you like. Um so so that, that was one issue I had and I think that connects with your point about it being quite general because even though there are there's a lot of close reading here which we, and I think there are really strong moments in the article even though I hear this music a little bit differently to how he hears it nevertheless I think we get a valuable kind of a, a close up of a listener with music here and that's a good thing. Um I think nevertheless despite all that close reading we just end up with such such a breath here such a kind of a, a wide array of ideas you know you read a paragraph and you think right i've got a handle on that next thing you know he pivots into something completely different then he pivots back then he goes to somewhere else all of it all of it bound together by this idea of psychoanalysis and and psychosis so there is a kind of a through line but it just become very unwieldy very hard to read um at, at points very kind of music becomes a a bit of a a placeholder for these ideas. You get the sense that even though he does these close readings, in general, I think this connects with your point about modernism not being a monolith, in general here, modernism becomes a bit of a monolith, and as we know, there's various versions of modernism, from the canonical to the non-canonical, from the... Um, I mean, think of someone like Harper Scott who, who has this very interesting vision of different forms of um, kind of consensual and um, you know, dissonant modernism, let's say. Um, and he uses from all the, the
1: concept of the quilting point as well.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, so, so there are many ways you could go with this and there's many varieties of modernism you could address yourself towards. That's not what's going on here. What what's happening here is more of a kind of a use of modernism as a kind of a a play object for you to kind of get into a flow state into your unconscious and and to kind of run with. So I think I think I'm talking myself round a bit on the article because something like that sounds fascinating and indeed much of the article was really really fascinating. But to draw all this a little bit together because I'm now doing kind of what he does, which is um, go on into various tangents I think that there's an issue here with generality, with breath which there could have been a little bit of reining in I think there's an issue with modernism being treated as a bit of a um, a floating signifier and I think there is a little bit of an issue with music itself being treated as a bit of a um, an, o- an open category to pour things into and I think you could have had this broad, creative, almost... Um, free associative approach, but handle it a little bit better in terms of reconciling that with a specific line of attack or, or argument. So this is this is an article which fascinated me and there's lots to it. And as we're, you know, we're, we're barely scratching the surface of it, but um, as we're kind of hope hopefully indicating to listeners, there is a lot of value in here. I just wasn't quite always on board with what I was getting at. Um, what do you think of those ideas of music being a kind of an empty category and modernism being a kind of a a general floating signifier here
1: i hear what you're saying and i i um, think we could talk about that quite a bit i want to ask you um actually well well first of all i just want to make the point in case it's not clear that i really think this is brilliant you know that it's it displays brilliance in almost every paragraph but as you're you're saying it's just so saturated that it's very difficult for the reader to to get a grasp on but it's the same with mm-hmm. in the book there is a just a, there's such an impressive breadth of reading and research that has gone into it and not only in musicology but in literary theory and in literature and in different languages it and it's not it's not just show offy i think there's a real passion that comes through in the tone i might sound like i'm talking about something trivial but like i tell my students when i'm telling them about writing about music just to have passion about what you are writing is a really important motivating factor and it's something that really actually often makes things more readable as well so Brodsky is really writing with style he's writing with panache at times he's maybe being a bit overly ambitious for the reader there are there are paragraphs and I've taken note of one or two of them where the concepts just stack up there's maybe like 10 different concepts one upon the other and it it sort of assumes that you already know what they all mean and you're able to kind of uh, prop them up in your mind uh, at once which isn't often the case but uh, it yeah so so I just wanted to make that point that that it really is massively impressive but I wanted to move on from that Eventually, I want to kind of get on to the whole concept of tonality and atonality, which I think is a really interesting part of this article. But before that, I just wanted to go off on a tangent, actually away from this article, maybe for a moment. You asked about this uh, kind of floating concept of music and floating concept of modernism. You've written about pop modernism recently, right? So I wanted to ask you a little bit about that. When you were reading this article, did it jar with you that maybe there was only one tradition being spoken about here wh- when there comes to questions of modernism and tonality?
0: Yeah I mean so when I, I, I wrote a chapter for um, a book that's just come out um, uh, last month I think the Routledge Companion to Modernism um, and my chapter was on popular modernism, um, or modernism and the masses, and I looked at various ways in which modernism and the public, um, and publics, have kind of interacted, so whether it might be a kind of a a glancing towards modernist kinds of expression in popular culture, or a glancing from um, modernist culture towards the public in one form or another, and I wasn't alone in doing that. Robert Adlington also has a chapter in the book which does something similar in some ways, although that sticks much more to uh, the kind of art music territory, but but he looks at various versions of modernism, such as the kind of aristocratic modernism or the modernism for the masses uh, and the difference between those two things. Um, Mine was kind of of the masses as well as for the masses, if you like, so from the masses, not just for the masses. So Sorry, that's a little bit uh, dense, but basically, yeah, I was reading this and I was I was thinking of my f- framing of modernism as being a little bit more uh, mobile than maybe uh, something like Brodsky allows here and thinking about how that maybe puts into relief some of the narrow kind of versions and visions he has of modernism. And I'm, I'm not the first to do that. You know, you can look at... A book from Ronald Schieffer called um, Modernism and Popular Music. You can look at uh, all sorts of articles, all sorts of kind of theorists in different fields outside music that make that link. Um, I mentioned Harper Scott earlier, and he he kind of pushes modernism towards um, composers like Walton and and other people. So there are many versions of modernism. Modernism becomes a kind of a a very kind of a flexible and dynamic uh, category, as it should, because it's such a huge and all-encompassing kind of a, a moment in culture, and so therefore the fact that we can apply it to and see it within various different areas is probably a good thing. You know, it shows the kind of uh, plurality and kind of uh, productivity of it as a, as a concept. So uh, you don't really get that from Brodsky's article here. I'm not sure if that's a huge problem because he's looking, you know, I mentioned earlier um, the, the concept of play and play is obviously closely related to the unconscious and i think there is a sense in which we could psychoanalyze this article in turn as as to some degree emerging from the unconscious you know it deliberately kind of uses theory and kind of is weighed down by theory but at the same time plays with it and um uses it to kind of uh, arrive at a kind of a exploratory almost kind of free vision of of what this concept might be so so yeah I've, i think i have issues with it but i think i also see how it it works for him here
1: okay so um just moving on then to talking about tonality i'm not sure whether that's um, an appealing prospect right now but i just thought i would bring it up because it's something that came to mind weirdly and maybe it's just a viennese kind of uh, spectre hanging over all of this uh, psychoanalytic stuff weirdly uh, a name that came to mind was Schenker because uh, Brodsky is talking about the unconscious and the conscious and uh, mapping this onto tonality right um, yeah. I was wondering you know, given this binarism whether there is sort of is this a traditional uh, gesture that's kind of being reprised in a different form where there's this ersatz uh, or a fundamental structure that's always in the background of works that are said to be tonal, um, and then there's the surface, which is like the imaginary. I'm mixing up all my terms now, but uh, do, no, do no, what no. I'm saying, right? um, I, I, I was just wondering to what degree maybe maybe the article was based on some kind of binarisms which have their own heritage, such as conscious slash unconscious and. I don't know, tonality as the unconscious of, as like a general pool or a general structure out of which any um, particular work emerges. Let's see, have I taken any notes where I've got an example of that? Yeah, not as such. I've just taken a few notes in regard to these binarisms. One, One being, for example, quote, this music plays with tonality, but cannot play in tonality as a system of playfulness. End of quote. I'm just what, yeah I, I wasn't sure whether that that distinction was one th- that I, I really held to because if we do hold to that then tonality is kind of like this transcendental signifier which is in the work but isn't subject to it or or maybe I'm pu- maybe I'm pushing the boat a, a little bit too far here. Um, I'm kind of reach reaching towards something without really getting it maybe. Um, but, but but basically, there, there's this sort of assumed concept of tonality, which, as you said in your introduction, is kind of based on dominant tonic uh, motion and hierarchization and cadence and so on. You know, the, the, the conventional traditional view. This is only developed, obviously, in the 19th century. It was theorized as such then. But um, I don't know. I mean, we get Webern's uh, epigraph, I think, is it saying, you know, I'm telling you now why, why tonality is over. But we don't really get much, um, too much from Schoenberg on the matter. And Schoenberg himself said that to talk of atonal music is like talking of non-spectral color, you know, it's, it's an oxymoron. So there is this this, this kind of um, this whole area of of tonal theory, which kind of crops up, and which Brodsky does have some very interesting perspectives on in in, in um, using Riem um, as a, a prism for it and going into Schoenberg, um, but. Yeah, I, I felt like maybe there were a couple of areas there that were questionable.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot to say on this as well. I think there's, there's two things. So from what you're saying there, are, are you questioning or are you kind of um, trying to reveal something that's going on in this article which isn't maybe explicit or, or intended, which is that tonality functions here as a, a kind of a, a given background to music um, and music which seems to use tonality or like adhere to that background then yeah. essentially yeah, operates it, well, as a kind of a sort of a logical ordered
1: and I system the, and then music the which doesn't seem to use tonality
0: still has to exist I within that
1: really framework. They're the only tonality or atonality there ever is is the very specific singular example in any specific singular work. I don't think there is this ideal background of, of tonality.
0: Right, but to play, because I was going to say something different, but to play devil's advocate to that point, I suppose the the refutation of that would be simply to say that how then do different musical works um, mean the same thing to different audiences by using the same language and the same gestures within a tonal frame? If there is nothing underlying tonality, if tonality, if tonality is simply how sounds are applied, how is that application coherent across different contexts? If you know what I mean?
1: Well, it's a, it is coherent across different contexts within a given tradition and culture. But let's say, you know, the ethnomusicology argument, if you play uh, a Haydn string quartet to somebody from, I don't know, you know, so, so, some secluded part of the world anyway, who's never been exposed to it before, they're not necessarily going to go, okay, there's the cadence there. And um, oh yeah, there's, that's, the tension has been building up, and now it's released, their, their behavioral, um, their reactions aren't going to be the same. Um, but no, we're, we're starting to get a bit too, too abstract, isn't it? Um, okay. But
0: let's bring it back, let's bring it back to, I, I take your point, I think we could say a lot more about that. Let's bring it back to this article though, because you started to talk about a quote which I think is valuable. So let me just read a, a slightly fuller version of it. This music plays with tonality but cannot play in tonality as a system of playfulness. Instead, tonality functions as an alien materiality, entering the song's flow as pure iteration quasi divine in its violence. A single bare F, a high major sixth, a low E minor chord, a low B minor chord, imaginary objects rather than chords proper. Such sounds are never never struggled with or against, but simply force the song in a different direction. Analogous to the interrupted sentences the psychotic hears, always broken off, forcing the subject to complete them. So this is music as kind of psychosis, right? this is, and he's talking about the song uh, Ich habe dich from uh, Um and he thinks this is a, a kind of, he, he calls it a remarkably faithful rendition of the Lacanian psychotic scenario. But to, to call back on everything we've just been saying about tonality, that's presuming that tonality is a very concrete and fixed system where The historical meaning of it has a lot of authority and can control it by negation or by kind of positive reinforcement, how later music comes to have meaning. Um, So it's not allowing those sounds to exist within a tonal frame, but also outside a tonal frame. It's saying that they need to be in tonality or outside tonality. So I think you could easily hear this music as being in tonality.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm I with you up until the last thing there. I, I myself feel that this distinction which you mentioned there, you read it out between imaginary objects and chords proper. So they are imaginary objects rather than chords proper. I don't think that's I think that's a false distinction. Uh, so who, ge- who gets to say what a chord proper is? Who, who is it who has that authority? It's this sort of simulacrum situation where um, I don't know, the imaginary object, I'm not sure that it is completely different from the chord proper. Um, And I mean, we can just say that any composer who has taken up this material is the one who invents it at any any given time. It's not that like they have to play by rules whereby a chord in a certain circumstances is proper or is what it is. And in another circumstance is a false copy of, of that. I don't think any of us can really say that 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 is the case necessarily um or, but but it, it also made me kind of think that passage about well if if this applies in ream's case that there are chords that aren't chords they're just imaginary weightless things well how does that apply to let's say feldman or, or gerald barry or cassandra miller or somebody like that people who use music that for want of a better vocabulary we might say has a suspended tonality or a suspended atonality, or kind of goes between the two. Um, if we're making these statements about ream, then they have to be generalizable, probably. right? They, they have to apply to, to anybody's use of the same material.
0: Yeah, they do. And um, I, I wonder what Brodsky would say to that. I also I just don't I, I don't hear those sounds that he identifies in the way that he hears them. So I was listening to some Reem today in preparation for the recording and I was listening to uh, his string quartets um, and I was listening to various other pieces and in particular I was thinking about uh, the third string quartet. Do you know that piece? No, I don't. So it's really, really interesting. It's typically for Reem it's it's kind of always in dialogue with itself it seems. There's always this not, not to kind of simplify or binarize it in the way that Brodsky's, I, I, I guess we're saying does, but there, there does seem to be at least kind of two layers going on where there's one form of reality and then there's another form of reality and they kind of they keep coming into contact with each other. Um, and just to be simple about, it, I suppose the forms of reality I'm talking about in this case are kind of expressionist, kind of almost Bartokian um, gestures against kind of almost late Beethoven, kind of a, the, almost almost like the kind of Heiliger Dankesang kind of beautiful and um, kind of churchly harmonies um, or kind of, or, or I suppose a bit more appropriate would be to say kind of late romantic sounds. So you get these movements where you'll get a minute or two of quite beautiful in the traditional sense, string riding, and then it'll it'll go up against this expressionist kind of um explosions um, but but the, the thing that's interesting to me is not that there's this juxtaposition because that's a a kind of a juxtaposition you find in all sorts of uh, 20th century and 21st century music and um, and in a lot of what's described as postmodern music you get these kinds of juxtapositions and you can think of famous examples like snicker or Naked City or whatever what's interesting to me in the in Ream is that it's not just using the the kind of external points of reference. So in this case, probably the, the late Romantic stuff. It's not just using that as a touchdown to bring new meaning to the other stuff, which is the real stuff. It's actually, it's as much that stuff as it is the other stuff, if you see what I mean. So it's as much the Romantic stuff as it is the expressionist stuff or modernist stuff. So unlike um, a modernist-like, um, or a postmodernist like John Zorn where you get pastiche and kind of parody or schnicker where you get passages in the music where there seems to be a kind of a glance towards another style but it's a glance which is in quotation marks. In Ream it seems to be the thing itself as well as looking at the thing itself so it, it's, it doesn't have the same kind of proportion if you like or ratio of home and away or like figure and ground or background and foreground it seems to like question that that binary and this is a very long-winded way of saying i feel like green sorry i feel like brodsky doesn't doesn't get that or or not not so much doesn't get it but doesn't hear it that way for him he very much restores a kind of a binary to the system because he talks about as we've just said in that passage he talks about the music as not really being in tonality but actually just Materializing it as this non, non kind of historical thing, where it's it's brought into the the fold, it's brought into the kind of the kind of the quilt, not the quilt, but it's brought into the flow of the music, but not not in its kind of original context. Instead, it's it's purely background or purely foreground. It's never it's never the ground itself. Do you know what I mean? So I don't know. I'm, I'm I think I'm talking myself in circles, but I think. I'm I'm trying to find a way to articulate how the music is operating in a very complicated way, but by contrast, Brodsky actually frames it in quite a dualistic way as kind of doing one thing and then kind of doing another almost as parody. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think when he interprets that, he, I, I, I said earlier that this article could use a bit more psychosis. He, he, he very much operates in a very stable position of interpreter. So he very much stamps his his authority on this and, and puts it into a very firm kind of a map of how all these things are working together. And I'm just not hearing the music in that in that way. How about you?
1: I think I would be a bit more generous. It feels to me now that you know we've we've begun to pick holes. Wherever we can, but that's—it's
0: a complicated one because actually, I think, I think any system of thought. Um, we've mentioned Lacan and Freud a lot today. You can pick probably more holes in their in their writing than you could in Brodsky's. So we always do this on this podcast. We always end up being very. It sounds like we're being very negative, but really, um, this article s- sparked my brain off in so many ways that. I guess I'm striving to understand my reaction to it as I'm as I'm critiquing it, as I'm, as I'm discussing it. And actually, I as we've been arriving at various points of criticism, I'm not sure any of them has really hit its mark fully. I'm not sure. I'm not sure his article has um, actually has actually failed. I think it stood up to our criticism. And I think despite everything I was just saying about some of the problems with it, I think actually when you come down to it, you could find those problems in, in any piece of uh, thinking. And as a piece of thinking, this is a, a really vibrant um, collection of, of things and, and ideas. And I think the fact that we're, we're talking around things and like struggling to, to, to get a foothold in it is probably a good thing.
1: I would just finish my, by, for my part by saying that up until recently, I used to say to people sometimes that I kind of felt nostalgic for the time when when writing about new music was grandiose and very ambitious and made big claims It didn't really seem to happen very much. It seemed like we'd gotten a bit too modest. Um, And I, I just find it so refreshing to read a musicologist who is very ambitious, who is really trying to take a long view and is making, you know, very bold, uh, original and stimulating claims. Okay, so let's go into research in the round where we take a look at events or publications in the world of musicology. Stephen, have you picked out anything in particular this time around?
0: Yes, I have just read a couple of days ago uh, a review article by Kate Guthrie, which is published in the 143rd volume um, of the Journal of the Royal Musical Association. Uh, issue two, so it's just published. Um, it's called Why Why We Can't All Just Get Along. And this is a response to William Chang's book from 2016 called Just Vibrations, The Purpose of Sounding Good, published in University of Michigan Press. Um, some of you will probably be aware of this book. It caused a lot of eruptions when it came out. Uh, there was the anti-crowd, which you could identify with everyone from Normal Lebrecht right up to slightly more temperate musicologists (laughs) and then there was the um, pro crowd which seems to locate itself mainly in the kind of identity politics wing of of musicology I think it's fair to say. Um, So this book I haven't read to be honest I've read parts of but I haven't read all of so I can't say that my criticisms or response to it are on any kind of firm ground really but uh, just to my reaction here isn't the important one, but I, I was a little bit suspicious of the book, I think And I think this review by Kate Godfrey, I think she really sums up or, or kind of Really um, gets to the heart of some of the instinctual kind of resistance I had to this book I won't spoil the review because it's really, really, really one of the best pieces of writing um I've read, certainly one of the best reviews or a piece of criticism I've read in a while Um, It's not that long, so uh, I'd encourage everyone to read it. She gives a very balanced and kind of thoughtful reaction to this book. She points out some of its strong features, but she ends up essentially pointing out a tension between the tone and style of the book and its central argument. So I think I'll just leave it there. So yeah, Why We Can't, I'll Just Get Along by Kate Guthrie.
1: That sounds really interesting. I can't wait to read that. I mean I I had gotten good impressions about the book itself having not read it yet either so um, I'll be interested to hear what what the critique uh, points to Um, so for my part uh, I'm not pointing to a journal publication I'm pointing to a website that's been launched called mapping musical modernism so this provides a map and a sort of historical uh, outline of some of the key geographical developments uh, in modernist music it's been developed by professor Bjorn Heile at uh, the university of glasgow and the map is intended to show three things one the major conservatories around the world with their date of foundation two the first dodecaphonic composition for each country and three the date of entry to the international society of contemporary music for each country and whether membership is active or has lapsed so it's an interactive map and you can go in and you can sort of uh, go through this information. It's a useful uh, research resource. And I think it's part of a broader kind of wave of reconsidering the develop the historiographical um, study of, of musical modernism in recent years. The URL is musicalmodernism.arts.gla.ac.uk.
0: Great sounds interesting I actually haven't had a look I've been meaning to have a look at that because Bjorn was posting about it on Facebook and I had not got a chance to so I'll check it out I think that's all we have for today's episode listeners if you've enjoyed this watch this space there will be another one possibly in eight months possibly in (laughs) two months who knows
1: thanks very much for listening and catch you later